0: Leaders, what keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders, and leaders of every stripe the sweet spot is the future of work and business.
1: Hi, my name is Emily Svajlanak, and on this episode, I speak to Chris Buckle, a continuous improvement professional from the UK. Chris has a broad range of experience in public sector, service, and engineering organisations, including roles at the Ministry of Justice in the UK, Maritime New Zealand, and Waikato District Health Board, and is currently a business improvement facilitator in the defence sector. Chris's research draws on organisational learning theory in attaining sustained change outcomes through the evaluation of paradigms and behaviours. As a recognised thought leader in continuous improvement, Chris regularly speaks at professional conferences and lectures at University of Warwick in his spare time. Hello Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the C-Suite Spot.
0: You're welcome. It's nice to be here.
1: You're zooming in all the way from the UK today. Thank you for thank you for making the time. Let's let's jump into it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for getting up so early. It's night time here.
1: Well, we, we've got to make it work. Um, before we get into the juicy conversation for today, can you introduce yourself to our audience and give a bit of background to who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. So. Um, So my name's Chris. Uh, I am a continuous improvement professional um, and my background is in UK government uh, civil service so I spent some time as a change agent there and helping them implement kind of large-scale transformation programs Um, and then I I recently moved into a more conventional manufacturing engineering type organisation so over the years I've, I've built up quite a lot of experience of of implementing change programs particularly continuous improvement so your liens and your six sigmas and and we'll talk about some of the the change methodologies as we go through I'm sure um, and yeah so I came over to New Zealand a few years ago took a career break uh, did my degree at uh, Waikato um, and then back to the UK and and kind of yeah just just kind of cracking on uh, just about to move into a into a slightly more strategic role so yeah that's kind of me in a nutshell really.
1: Oh thank you for that. So just off the back of that can you can you give us your definition of change management?
0: Yeah so that's a really interesting question um and I suspect that there's there's quite a there's quite a wide range of opinions in certainly in academia but actually in practice. Um so there's two key themes, really, for me, when we're talking about change management. The first one is around rapid learning, and the second is around agility and adaptation. So uh, just to, to put that into context, we're in, a, we're in an environment and in a world now where everything's happening really, really quickly. Um, a lot of that's driven by technology, but actually there's a lot of social trends that, that have also driven that as well. Um, and that means that businesses have to react quickly in order to stay current, in order to identify new commercial opportunities Um, and the culmination of that has really fundamentally affected how we have to think about and how we design our service and our operational models. So rapid learning is really important because that's how we survive, that's how we adapt and then the, the second part of that around the agility is around putting that learning into practice and developing systems and processes and operations that are able to adapt in the face of that rapid learning. So just to kind of bring that together, we've got those two things, rapid learning and agility are the keys to good change management.
1: thank you. So in just listening to you there, it's really applicable not to just businesses, but to the individual itself as well, because you ideally want to be able to be agile and um, think on your feet and adapt as things change
0: yeah absolutely right and isn't it isn't it weird how we talk about change management in a business context and it's it, and it's quite a it's quite a big issue for firms to get right but actually in every other facet of our life we change all the time we're naturally you know we're good at change but yet for some reason at work it, it's this big problem that, that's riddled full of problems so it's, there's an interesting sort of paradox in there somewhere I think.
1: Mm, yeah, we, we're good at change and we're not humans. I'm a routine person, for example. I love thinking on my feet and being flexible and everyday changes, especially when you're NPR. But at the same time, having a routine and having consistency gives you certainty. And when that is taken away and things change, we've seen it with COVID, it can get quite uncomfortable. So talking about the organisational form of change management, before we get into sort of the larger concepts, what what are some of the key things that organisations tend to do well and what are some of the things they tend to usually go wrong when someone says, okay, we're going to make change in the organisation and um, it's for our process improvement, it's going to be great. What does it actually look like in, in
0: real life? Sure, so actually that's a really easy question to answer and the, the upshot is, not very well company <laughs> f- firms are very bad at change so um just to, some some statistics on this so out of all the organizations that attempt long-term transformational programs only five percent of firms actually get there so nine and a half times out of ten with a transformation program companies fail um and we, we can we can dig into some of some of the reasons for that um but as a starting premise. It's it's fairly well accepted that organisations aren't very good at change, which is surprising. That statistic is really surprising, isn't it? So, so some of the key things the, the key things that that causes not to be very good at change. There's generally, I mean, there's a, there's kind of ten or eleven reasons, but the three the three big hitters that we need to think about are lack of leadership, um, lack of strategic alignment. That's particularly important in ensuring that particularly in a continuous improvement space, which is which is kind of my um, my area of expertise, we've got to make sure that our change programs are linked into the wider organizational and strategic objectives. Uh, otherwise, you can end up with some change activity that's not actually helping the business where it wants to be. So having that alignment is really, really important. Um, and the other thing is, um, and it sounds so obvious, but it we, we, we don't seem to be very good at it. And this is around behaviours and engagement, right? So our organisation is built on people, the processes, the policies, the artefacts, the strategy, they're designed to enable us a framework to get to where we want to go. But actually, it's, it's really, it's the behaviours and the engagement with our people that allows us to achieve that. But isn't it interesting that As businesses, we tend to focus on the tools, the techniques, the processes, the technology. And quite often we we forget to bring or we overlook to bring our people with us. And that's a really big reason why change fails. So, yeah, the Holy Trinity of change, failure, right
1: there. I love that the whole eternity of change, failure. And it is interesting. Talk to the people, bring the people along and and you'll have much better chances. Have you seen in your research and in your work an example of an organisation that thinks they've got all of that, that thinks they're talking to the people, they think they're people first, but then it goes horribly wrong?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And A, a, a lot of my research was trying to understand those those types of phenomena. So I'm doing a pilot study at the moment with with quite a large UK health sector organisation. And and what we're we're doing with them is we're actually, we're examining, we're going out into the business and we're examining the the artifacts and the rituals. We're observing conversations. We're kind of touching and feeling and sensing the the environment that we're in. And we're actually able to, to infer from those things the, the the difference between how an organization says it behaves compared to actually how it does how that plays out and how it really behaves um, and my research is really geared around understanding the, the the incongruence between those two things because if we can if we can unlock that and we can align what we say we do say in a in a mission statement or a, a kind of our way type document, you know, you, the most, most firms have these quite firmly in place. Um, and what you actually find out it is that what they say they do, doesn't doesn't play out in, in reality, or when you ask the people, you say you know, you ask them, is does this value seem seem real to you is do you feel that, that the organisation is true to its word on that um, most of the time they say actually no. Um, and then by pointing out those incongruences we can then start to understand well, what's the real what what's the real thinking what's the real logic that's driving change operations project management all that stuff and if we can understand that and, and address that then that means we'll have much better success at kind of doing what we say and and that means that you have a much better chance of sustaining change
1: so what is your role as change agent in an organisation when they come in, presumably they say, hey, we're undergoing, we're going through some process improvement. Um, we want to update how we work. We want to transform. We want to be better, bigger, faster, more amazing than we already are. What do you actually do?
0: Sure. So so quite, quite often there's already a, a sort of burning platform or, the, the need to change or do something differently has already been identified. A lot of that time that, that's driven by kind of commercial aspects of the business. So maybe there's um, some trouble in the kind of financial performance, or maybe they're losing market share or something like that. Or, or maybe, you know, they're just recognizing that the environment that they're operating in, that perhaps has been relatively stable for the last, you know, 10, 20 years, that that's now changing much quicker. And therefore, a lot of organizations are now realizing that need, they're starting to recognize that need to be to be a bit more agile and a bit more kind of proactive. Um, And so my role as a change agent, really, it kind of spans everything from the kind of technical application of tools and techniques designed to solve specific problems. There's a huge emphasis on on data analysis. So really, you, the first step is usually to understand with evidence what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And you'd be amazed how often, you know, quite senior management teams invite me in and say, don't worry, we're really clear on the problem. Uh, and then when we actually get into it, the, the problem we're trying to solve is actually quite different. Um, so there's a lot of things around kind of that coaching and supporting people through change role. Um, obviously, my role can make my job can sometimes make people feel quite uncomfortable because an important part of a change agent role is to challenge that conventional thinking to to make people question the things that, that they believed in and the, and the things the way they might have been doing their job across their career might not be the best way to do it so there's a little bit of that um, but really you know it's about creating uh, a kind of environment that, that's conducive to allow people to examine their own, internally, um, examine their own assumptions and their own thinking, as well as the organisational, in a more collective sense, um, and just kind of being being that guy that kind of pu- keeps pushing them, being keeping that perseverance going, um, and and you do you do see that transformation. Um, but it's just it's helping them to to get there so so they they know that they've got some problems to solve and then it's just helping them go through that well let's actually validate what the problem is we're trying to solve and let's start to try and get over some of the hurdles that are kind of stopping us get getting where we need to be yeah so I think that's in quite broad terms that's how I'd, I'd explain the role of a change agent.
1: So do you think that your role has changed within let's say the the last two to five years in terms of the approach in terms of the terminology has that been quite constant or has the way our world is developing and the way we are all changing technology is changing has that influenced how your role works within an organization
0: wow i mean what a great question so, so I've definitely noticed that. So, so over time, things like the terminology changes because there'll be certain change methodologies that are in in favour. Um, some of that the, the, they tend to go through cycles of popularity. It's a it's a little bit seasonal and a bit faddy. Um. So, I mean, at the moment, everybody's talking about agile and Scrum and things like that. A few years ago, it was kind of lean and Six Sigma. Um, and so the, the the phraseology and the tools and techniques do change, but fundamentally, um, you know, if, as a ch- as a change agent and a and a, a driver of change, um, my role requires me to to be to be uh, thinking very quickly and learning quickly, and so what. Whilst I'd say that that's happening faster than perhaps it was five or ten years ago, it's that fundamental skill that enables me to be successful in my role and therefore for me fundamentally it hasn't changed that much i guess the the other thing that's important that i spend a lot of time doing is actually looking ahead and doing a lot of trend analysis keeping an eye on on the digital scene keeping an eye out for those new technologies um those new trends um and again that that helps me stay a bit ahead of the game and, again, that enables me to, to bring the organisations I'm working with along with me.
1: Has COVID changed any anything in terms of the work environment? And, um, obviously, a lot of businesses have faced, and I dare say the word, unprecedented challenges. Yeah. Um, do you think that, that we are still in the middle of it, the world is still up in flames, but do you think that that inevitably will trigger forced change management throughout or will people want to be going back to the way things were?
0: So I've, I've, I think we will get to a point or we're about to get to the point where we, we won't go back. So in, in the sort of day-to-day practical sense, whilst a year ago I might have been doing a lot of process mapping and analysis in a room, with a group of people. Now we do it via Skype call, for example. So in lots of ways, the, the kind of mediums that we used to communicate with each other have changed, but fundamentally we're still doing the same things. What I do think COVID has, has triggered, which is for, for a CI and a change practitioner, it is in some ways, you know, a, a bit of a dream come true because what it's done is it, it's spawned this there's almost been a resurgence and a rebirth of this entrepreneurial thinking, right? Because almost every business has been fundamentally changed in a massive, massive way. And you know, let's be honest, it's a brute, it's a brutal business world out there. Um, somebody, somebody once used the phrase "commercial Darwinism," which I thought was quite, in, quite an interesting one. And so, what what we're going to see off the back of this is a load of entrepreneurial type, you know, rapid experiments. The, changing the way we deliver projects from a conventional waterfall approach where we plan and cost everything up front and then deliver it. Now we're seeing the emergence of things like agile, where it's, you know, let's get a minimum viable product out there. Let's do some rapid testing and let's move. And actually that's that's where I want my clients to be because, you know, when we're, rapid, we're learning rapidly, we can adapt and we can change and we can stay ahead of the competition. And if we don't do that, the, the long-term survival of our firm is, is probably the outlook for that, isn't that great? The, the, the companies that are gonna survive, and whether it's COVID or whether it's the next technology disruptor, organizations that can't learn and adapt quickly are just not gonna are just not gonna make it. And that's the that's the reality of of where we're at, I think.
1: So what are some things from your your point of view that business leaders that are saying okay we need to change but maybe they need to talk to others in the business to bring them on board what how would you suggest they start those conversations and what can they do uh, what can they put in place to allow for a smooth transition
0: sure so I think things like um, horizon and environmental scanning are becoming really really important um I mean, I know it's a, bit, a little bit of a cliche in some ways, but the, the reason that undergrads are taught things like STEP and SWOT analysis is precisely because those are the kind of tools that allow you to, to understand that external environment. But also there's the internal aspect to consider as well, right? And that's where we'll see. So again, the companies that are gonna that are going to do well, and respond well to the disruption from covid are going to be those organizations that collaborate well internally so it's about the breaking down of stovepipes or or what we might call silos and really joining up the organization and having that systems wide systems look at the business but actually what what we sh- what we'll also see is particularly in service organizations we're going to start to see the customer being brought into the the service creation a lot more closely, so in a service organisation, uh, the customer is directly involved in the production of value. Now that it's quite a quite a difficult concept, I think to to get your head around. But conventionally, what we what we do is the customer would give us some money, we'd make them something, and then we deliver it afterwards. But actually, that's changed now. the, the, the customer is much more involved. In particularly in a service organisation where we might not have even a physical product, um, we're delivering a service, and therefore we've really got to we've got to understand the the different uh, kind of context that that we're operating in, uh, and companies that are able to go outside of their in, internal boundaries and bring the customer into the heart of what they're doing are going to be the ones that give that really good service. They're going to get that customer retention um, and they're going to be more successful.
1: Somewhat like our approach to how we deal with our clients at Alexander PR, because we, we don't just say, okay, you want to build your brand and this is your mission and this is what you do. Okay, we'll just go off and do our thing. It is that, okay, well, what does that mean? And we get to know the client and the business and how what their philosophy is, what the background is, the whole context and um, really understand the business before we then add value through PR and the strategy is built around that and with them rather than just plug, plugging in something that looks great from the outside but might not be functional.
0: Yeah, sure. So, so something, something like user-generated content, for example, is is that is that is that something that you've seen in in the marketing and PR field? That's that's become almost the kind of the way that everybody does it now. A few years ago, that was quite a new concept, right? So I guess if I wanted to market my business, I'd come to a I'd go to a marketing firm, and they'd say, yeah, you pay us this much, and we'll generate your ads and all that kind of stuff. But actually, I mean that marketing industry is a really good example to to talk about this com- this con- concept of servitization right because now we're asking our customers we're encouraging them to actively be involved in our marketing processes rather a few rather than a few years ago they would just be the the kind of recipient of our marketing campaigns um so that's a re- it's a really good example actually
1: i think user-generated content definitely is something that it's not at least in in my experience. It's not at that point where that is the sole driver. It is becoming really important and you see a lot of PR campaigns and um, a lot of marketing, advertising that asks for user generated content, but it, it does build that extra layer of trust and engagement that you just can't get from saying the company says they're great, but then the users say it's great too. It's it's that proof, that social proof that you you need. You can't just say, I'm great, and people believe you. That's not the case in today's world. People have become, and I think in a very much a positive way, quite critical of what businesses say about themselves. How do you think that that shift of focusing on bringing clients into the service Creation and delivery. How do you think that will play out in the next five years?
0: So I think that, <clears throat> that, that there needs to be a, almost a bit of a renaissance. That we I think we need to move away from this conventional management thinking, where you know the 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 customer or the service user is a is a passive recipient of our product or service. Um, I think we need to move away from things like command and control management, where we where we see our business. As a distinct set of processes, and try and optimise those, usually by making our people go faster, rather than actually understanding what our customers actually want. Um, and the the other point is this this idea of co production of value. So we we can't we can't separate the customer from the from a service. That they're in they're involved in the in the completion and generation of that, and of course. The, the service itself in terms of the, the customer experience is often consumed instantaneously, right? And so by understanding these kind of principles, we can start to build and design our service to maximize the opportunity to add value to the customer.
1: In a, let's say a manufacturing or construction industry, how do you think that would be applied?
0: Oh, well, I, I've got a really good example Actually, of a of a, com- of a quite a famous company, you will have heard of Rolls Royce, presumably. About ten or fifteen years ago, they implemented a strategy which they called Power by the Hour. Now, this was a huge. This was a huge disruptor in the manufacturing industry. Um, so, conventionally, Rolls Royce manufactured airplane engines. Okay, and what they would do is they would sell a number of they they work they go to Boeing or they go to the airline. And the airline would say right we'd like 20 20 engines for our aircraft Um, and then they pay for them up front and Rolls Royce would go away and they build the engine and then they'd sell them the engine so let's look at that from a kind of financial management perspective so you get a big influx of cash at the beginning of the year uh, and then you you use that cash to make the products and then deliver it to your customer great so over time what they started to realize was actually that's not that's that's not very sustainable long term for us right because something like an aircraft engine might be in operation for 10 20 years so actually all that money we've got up front now we've now got no revenue coming into our business for the next 10 years so so what they realized was actually they could operate a, a completely different business model whereby they give the engine they build the engine almost for free but actually they they then get paid to service and maintain that engine. And so they actually started charging per per hour of running engine. Um, and, of course, what that meant was that they then had a much steadier flow of income throughout the year. It was much more predictable. And actually, the, the customer was benefiting as well, right, because they didn't, rather than receive their engine and then have to pay someone else to repair it, they didn't have to worry about their engines going down. Um, and that really, not only did Rolls-Royce go from having 90% of their business, that conventional product sales, now it's it's the opposite. 90% of their revenue now comes from ongoing service and maintenance, um, but it also completely disrupted the industry. And we're now seeing that spill over into things like defense, where I'm working at the moment, where my firm, are involved in maintaining and servicing assets rather than just you build it up front and then you sell it. Um so we've we've we can see this transition from a very product orientated business model to a service model. And that's really that's where the trend's going. So Rolls Royce is a really good example to to try to illustrate that.
1: Oh that's really fascinating. I had no idea. In Rolls Royce, I still think about the the classic beautiful cars and obviously the engines. Um, but for me, that they're never quite translated. How fascinating! <laughs> oh,
0: they still make they still make those too.
1: <laughs> um, do you think that technology and AI will eventually mean that humans don't even touch the manufacturing side of things at all? And we're only going to look on the service side of things.
0: Yeah, so so let's look at maybe technology as a, as a disruptor in that sense. So let's let's imagine a digital factory where you don't you don't have any people on the shop floor. It's all done by robots. It's all planned and scheduled and analysed, and all the quality control is done. So so that means that there's a, there's a potential problem there because what are people going to do? We can't all be managers, right? Um, we might we might be able to retrain, but actually, so pervasive uh, and embedded is that is that technology that that actually you can't just go to another company because guess what they'll be doing the same thing. So, what what companies are going to have to do is actually leverage things like big data analytics, AI, um, and and develop services that utilise those. So actually, what we might see is a let's say a car manufacturer might actually move into a more analytics type consulting um, kind of business area. So they might develop new products and services. They might go and consult for other companies and the actual manufacturing of those cars becomes less and less of their revenue or their, their core business. And again, this all comes back to that rapid learning, making sure that you, that you understand you're ahead of the trends and how the industry is changing and that you need to be able to adapt to that and you need to be able to identify new commercial opportunities or, or you will not survive.
1: I think we'll hit home for quite a few, yeah. but we're not obsolete just yet as people, which is great. <laughs> There's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no but i mean it is it is a really interesting concept isn't it so so what what are people going to be doing the more, you know we we're starting to see ai bots if you speak to a bank you're quite often talking to a bot in the in the background you know all of those those manual processes at the moment what's everyone going to do when those jobs aren't there anymore and that's a, i think that's quite a big question that as a society um, and as a, as a kind of world community, we really, we need to start thinking about that.
1: Mm, definitely. I don't,
0: know, I don't have the answer on that one.
1: <laughs> we'll come back to you in a, in a year or so and, and have an, another chat about that, see how things have changed.
0: Well, I mean, the interesting thing is in, in my role, it, so my goal is always to develop the capability in the firm that they are self-sustaining in continuous improvement. So actually, if I'm if I'm really good at my job, you don't need a continuous improvement manager right because it's embedded so the the mark of me being successful is doing myself out of a job so i can kind of empathize with you know with the with maybe a mechanic or somebody who works in a production line and they're seeing all this technology come around them you know they're probably working off iPads where they were doing paper systems just a couple of years ago you know that is is quite a is quite a question isn't it
1: one hundred percent, and I think we could we could keep talking about this um, for hours, but I'm conscious of um, your time as well. So one more question, um, leading on from that, and this is a question if you've listened to our podcast, you've heard me ask of quite a few of um, our podcast guests, and that is around the future of work. Um, we're at Alexander PR We've we've dealt a lot with. Our clients who've done the four-day week, global movement, and flexible working. Um, on your view and from your perspective as a change agent, where do you see the future of work going, and what do we have to do to get there?
0: Yeah, so it's going to be really interesting for for people in my profession who are who are going to have to somehow <clears throat> look at look at process and bring lots of people in a. In, from a business together when actually they might all be working from home or working remotely um, and so there's there's some technological and, and communications challenges that need to be overcome. Um, I think we're slowly learning so I think most of us have kind of got to grips with you know breakout rooms on MS Teams, Zoom so all the conferences that I'm speaking at at the moment they're all digital now um, and actually that's opened up a lot of opportunities so you know i'll be speaking in a conference in norway for example later in the year which i never would have i never would have done um, had that not been an option but you know i'm i'm quite optimistic I, I think people will i think we'll just find a way to to make it work because we have to right if we don't then then we fail so i don't know exactly what that looks like but i can certainly see more of the more of the webinar style leveraging that that technology but actually that might mean we can we can now network with a lot more people than than we could have done conventionally Um, so some great opportunities but obviously some risks there as well
1: fantastic thank you for that and um thank you so much for your time today and for coming to speak on the podcast
0: you're very welcome
1: if our listeners want to learn more about you your work get in touch follow your journey where
0: do they find you? Okay, so this is the chance I get to plug my papers and, and book. Is it? Yes. Um, okay. Well, I haven't got a book, <laughs> um, so that makes that a bit easy. Um, you can, you can, they can hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm happy for you to provide an email contact if, en- if anyone's interested, and I'm more than happy to share my research uh, with people as well. Uh, and maybe we can set up a webinar or a Skype discussion or something like that. Yeah, wherever you are in the world, I'm more than happy to speak to you.
1: Fabulous. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Chris, so much.
0: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.